And um, we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, which we'll continue today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles in a seat rack in front of you. I encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 4. I'll get to verse 26 in a moment. Uh, just one last announcement I had forgotten earlier is uh, we're planning to have a picnic today outside right after the service, but it turns out it's hot. Uh, so we're going to move the picnic inside. So if you would plan to go, uh, just stay. If you weren't planning to stay, we invite you to stay. You can always sneak out to Taco Bell. Let them know I sent you. I get a cut just for saying that. <laughs> but that's not true. Uh, but love for you to stay and join us uh, just in the foyer, and we'll continue fellowshipping and encouraging one another. Let me pray that God would bless the preaching and reading of his word today. Father, we believe that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We believe that your word is like rain that comes down uh, from the sky and in touching the ground, it brings forth life, for your word does not return void. We believe that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to pierce deeper than joints or marrow. It is able to penetrate soul and spirits. Your word is truth, and we pray that we would hear truth, believe truth, live in light of truth today. In Christ's name, amen. So in our new home, uh, we have had the great privilege of weeding excessively this spring and summer. And uh, you, many of you who are expert gardeners know that those most vicious weeds are also the ones whose roots are hardest to actually have to come out. And so no matter how many times we go after these suckers, they keep coming back. Um, just was kind of reminded in my own life this week of a root that I've gone after but not gotten up, and that's the root of pride, right? Different times tried to pull that weed, but it lingers and it festers and it continues to suck and steal life. I was also reflecting this week when I was a young man in the 80s with my brother. We used to watch this television show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And this Robin Leach would give you tours every week of people's yachts and mansions and extravagant vacations. I was watching uh, uh, just the first 60 seconds of an episode this week on YouTube, and he was going to go and uh, visit someone's $70 million mansion and $40 million yacht on that particular episode. And uh, what's interesting is, think about it, this used to be on like once a week, but now, like every 10 minutes, you can read what the Kardashians had for breakfast and what they bought. Or you can follow Meghan Markle, or you can watch Taylor Swift or Tom Hanks and learn about what they're buying and living in. And it's, it, it's easy sometimes to step back and be like, I'm glad I'm not like one of them. And yet, in my own heart this week, I, I, I might want not want that, but I want something. And usually what I want is I want to come without suffering, and I want it to come quickly, and I want to make a big splash. I want people to think I'm someone. I want, I want, I want, <laughs> I want big results, with little efforts, getting the respect and fame of many, success, personal happiness. And then there's Jesus of Nazareth. 
about a hundred years ago, someone put Jesus' resume on earth in words like this. His mother's pregnancy was scandalous. He took his first breath in an obscure village. He traveled as a refugee in his early years, then worked as a carpenter until the age of 30. For three years, he preached in a small geographic area, never traveling more than 200 miles. He never wrote a book, owned a home, or served in high office. At the height of his ministry, there were crowds of thousands, but on at least one occasion, the large crowd was reduced to a handful after Jesus' direct commands. Political and religious authorities considered him a fraud and a threat. His own friends abandoned him. A close companion betrayed him. Another follower denied him. The court ruled him a blasphemer and an enemy of the state. His punishment? Death on a cross between heinous criminals. His only property at death was a fine tunic, and even that was gambled away as he hung above the earth, dying on earth. Later that day, he was buried in a borrowed grave, gifted through the pity of a friend. We want to make a splash. We want people to idolize us. Because why? Because we idolize those who have made it. We elect them home to the homecoming court. We read about them in the newspaper. We scroll through their pictures on Facebook and Instagram. They are the kings and queens of earthly kingdoms. The kingdom might be a single high school, might be a large company or a small city. Still, they rule and they reign. And in our hearts, we long for their power. We long for their fame. We long for their significance. Now, into such a world comes Jesus, and he starts talking about a different sort of kingdom. If you remember way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the message of his ministry was the kingdom of God is at hand. His life, his words were about a kingdom. And in the middle of chapter 4, verse 26, he's going to give some parables, some stories about, well, what is God's kingdom really like? Let me read to you two parables, verses 26 through 32. Jesus also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scattered seed on the ground, and night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Verse 30, again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Mark has this little uh, conclusion of this section when he says, with many parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Now, I believe that the lingering doubt that Jesus is addressing in these two parables is this. Jesus, your kingdom doesn't seem to be taking off. He's, he's maybe a year, year and a half into his ministry. It's still a handful of folks. He's been preaching about king and kingdom. He still looks like a traveling itinerant preacher with not much of a following. 
But it turns out that this concern in the first century, I think, is the same concern we have as the 21st century. We might ask ourselves, is being a Christian really panning out? Is it working? Maybe, maybe right now you're, you're struggling in your marriage, or maybe right now you're watching the kids that you raised in the church wander off, or maybe you're trying to walk with Jesus in, in middle school or high school, and you're saying, this isn't working. Like, I thought Jesus was this conquering king, and, you know, there's this hope, and there's blessing, and, it, and it, this is hard. What kind of king and kingdom is this? Hence these two parables. What is the kingdom of God like? How would we recognize it? How would we know that we're a part of it? And so we have this first kingdom parable. He says the kingdom of God is like what? Verse 26. A man scatters seed on the ground. And and what the idea is, a seed is this very simple thing, and it's just being scattered on the ground. It's being scattered into the world. But he's going to go on to say that this simple little seed is leading to a sure harvest. Simple seed to a sure harvest. Now a seed, what is a seed? Like seed is a little embryo, it has a little bit of kind of food resources in it. Uh, notice what Jesus says in verse 27. He says, Night and day, whether, this, whether he, the, the farmer, sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. You know, prior to that, uh, the, uh, the photography, you know, that you know, videos the whole thing and you get to watch it grow. Like most growth, you know, it's particularly the first century, they knew things grow, but it was so imperceptible. Seem mysterious. How is this happening? Verse 28, it says, all by itself the soil produces grain. That, that term, all by itself, the English term, it actually comes from a Greek term from which we get automatically. It just seems to be automatic. This, this thing grows. And then it says, it talks about growth. It starts with a stalk and then the head and then a full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now, harvest is a very common biblical metaphor, both in the Old and New Testament. And what is harvest? Harvest is day of reckoning. Harvest is the day that you take away what is good and you throw away what is not. And so on one hand, Jesus is speaking about at the end of time, Jesus returns, there is this judgment, and there will be this reckoning of what is true, what is good, what is valuable, what is of God, what is sprung from the seed of his word, and what is not. The the weeds, the alien organisms, that's happening. But harvest in Scripture isn't just about a day of reckoning. It's also about what can happen in our life. If you have a Bible, turn to the right to a book called Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 11. We read this, Hebrews 12, chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. The writer of Hebrews says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. 
So today, if you're wondering, is my Christianity paying off? I seem to be suffering. There seems to be sorrow. The writer of Hebrews would say, I know. I appreciate the honesty of the Bible. You know, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. This is, this, is, this is realistic religion. You might find people on television or on the internet who will tell you that religion always works and it is wonderful. The New Testament says, sometimes it's really painful and it's really hard. And yet there's hope. However, when we allow the discipline, discipline and the sorrows and the suffering to train us, what produces out of our life is a harvest of righteousness and peace. So maybe you're a 20-year-old today and you feel very unpopular or maybe you underpaid, you're struggling with the job that you want or the career that you want or the college degree that you want. You don't have the kind of relationship you want. Struggling with a sense of purpose. Jesus would say, my kingdom is like this. It goes into the ground, and though the growth is imperceptible, it is still certain. Those who are willing to be trained by God's discipline and go through the seasons of life, there's a harvest coming. Or if you're the empty nester about to retire and you're not, you're not sure about your kids or this whole church thing, it's amazing how many empty nesters retire from church as their kids graduate from high school. Why is that? Maybe they've wondered, what is this king and kingdom like? Do they believe that it is good? Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 18, verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Right? The nature of God's kingdom is not the kind of kingdoms that you see on lifestyles of the rich and famous. He's doing something so different. I really appreciate the writings of a St. Louis pastor named Zach Eswine. And Zach writes this, almost everything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. Almost everything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. Jesus says his kingdom is like a very a simple seed, but it brings a sure harvest made me think this week about the life of Mother Teresa, right? Randomly, uh, this woman born in what was Yugoslavia wanders her way to Calcutta in 1937 as a nun. About a decade later, she experiences the poorest of the poor in India, and she says, I want to do something about it. So what does she do? She convinced 12 other sisters to start uh, the missions of charity. Thirteen ladies, that said no one, gets, no one dies anymore without dignity. That's all they did. They cared for the poorest of the poor, the, most, the outcasts of the outcasts, people dying on the street. They said, we want these people to receive the death and honor as if they were angels. That's it. But simple things become sure harvests. And so at her death in 1997, the 13 sisters had become 4,000 sisters. The single country had become a hundred countries. And most of us this morning are saying, that's nice, Pastor Matt. I ain't no Mother Teresa. But let me, remember, let me remind you what Zach Eswine said. 
almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly over, overlooked things over a long period of time. So ask yourself this morning, what are those small, mostly overlooked things that you're tempted to blow off? Most of us want to make a big splash quickly with little effort. But what are the small, mostly overlooked things that are disciplines that promise a sure harvest? Maybe it's opening your home or apartment to a neighbor. Maybe it's forgiving those who have sinned against you. Maybe each day it's setting aside some time to pray with your spouse. Maybe it's saying no today and tomorrow to that substance or that drink that too easily corrupts you. Maybe it's turning off the television an hour each night to play with your children. Maybe it's committing to start your day in Bible reading and prayer. Maybe it's sharing Jesus with that person you've wanted to speak to but have been too scared. Maybe it's volunteering each week at your local elementary school. You see, the kingdom of God is like this simple seed. It's imperceptible. It's small. It's mostly overlooked. But those things that truly matter result in a sure and certain harvest to the glory of God. Jesus' second parable is similar. What is the kingdom of God like? I'll reread verse 30. It says, again, he said, what shall, the king, what, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? Verse 31, it is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. So we have mustard seed, <laughs> shade, birds. <clears throat> now, every now and again, someone who's looking for a reason to undermine the New Testament will say, you can't trust Jesus, he's an idiot. There are smaller seeds than mustard seeds. I'm just let you know, Jesus is using a metaphor. He's not writing a scientific paper for peer review. But he does say, the kingdom is like this really, really small seed. It's small, but it doesn't stay small. He wants you to know that. It's small, but it doesn't stay small. For a little teeny mustard seed grows into a very large plant, and it says it gets so large that birds can perch in its shade. Now, interesting, this other, this metaphor of birds and shade actually comes out of a prophet in the Old Testament named Ezekiel. And what he's actually saying is, though this kingdom is small, though it seems to only be blessing a few and helping a few, he says, one day this is going to grow so that all the people and all the nations of the earth can rest in the shade and mercy of God. Let me read to you some verses in Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24. They read this way. This is a prophet several, several hundred years before Jesus. And it's in Ezekiel writes, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. And on the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I 
excuse me. <clears throat> I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. And then later in Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 6, he explains, All the birds of the sky nested in its boughs. All the animals of the wild gave birth under its branches. All the great nations lived in its shade. And so Jesus is speaking of his own life, that Jesus is going to be this seed who dies in the earth. But out of his death and after his resurrection, he will be established as the branch of David, the shoot of Jacob that rises. And out of the great promises of the Old Testament come Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, that through his mercy and grace, all peoples from every continent, every geopolitical nation, every people group, every tongue, can rest under the shade and mercy of Christ by trusting in his name. A small thing will have a large finish. I mean, the ministry of Jesus touched a few hundred or a few thousand people. Right now, there are two billion professing Christians. There's another billion Muslims who honor Jesus or Isa as a prophet. Jesus is the most famous person on the planet. What was small is now mighty and large. That's how Jesus, that's what Jesus says his kingdom is like. And so one of the things I think we're tempted to do as Christians is we're tempted, I'm talking maybe collectively or as a church or, you know, maybe even as a political movement, we try to create quick results. We try to manufacture you know, a better society or a great society. And we get really worried or really fearful when we see the kingdom not growing as we want it. And so we start coercing and manipulating and challenging and, and fighting. And, you know, as it turns out, that isn't how Jesus's kingdom was established, nor how it has, has, it has grown for 2,000 years. We don't need to fear. We don't need to coerce people or control the outcomes. How does the, Jesus, how does the kingdom of Jesus get established and expand throughout the earth? Going the second mile. Turning the other cheek. Forgiving your enemies. Blessing those who persecute you. It turns out the kingdom of God doesn't advance through elections or nominees or political action groups. His kingdom expands as they live in li like their king. Let's think about this king. Remember him. The king of the ever-expanding, harvest-ensuring kingdom lived this way, ministered this way, and he died this way. He did not try to bring attention to himself, just the opposite. He would heal someone, and he would tell people, let's be quiet about this. He avoided the crowds. He would escape into obscurity. He refused the people's desire to make him a king. He stood silent before accusers. He accepted the whips and mockery of his enemies. He carried his own cross to Calvary. He forgave enemies from the cross. By the end of his earthly ministry, a handful of people were willing to associate with him. At that point, his ministry looks about as successful as a person dying on death row with his mom, brother, and lawyer watching. That's Jesus. 
the king lived out the values that he proclaimed really at the early part of his ministry, as recorded in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 and following. Maybe you've heard these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The sky is dark, and the haters keep yelling, and Jesus breathes his final breath on the cross. The end. No, it's not the end. That was a comma. Remember, three days later, the king of this kingdom rises from the dead. John 12, verse 24 says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Acts 2.24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for, the de- for death to keep its hold on him. Do you realize that if you live in relationship to his king and his kingdom, it is impossible for you to stay dead? This is why a simple thing becomes a sure har- harvest. That's why something small, small is certain to become large because this is how God's king and his kingdom Work. Oh, friends, this is not the end. A small mustard seed enters the ground and brings forth shade for the birds. Jesus dies so all nations and all people might be saved. Revelation 5 9. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. It turns out that this backwoods crucified man, it is through him, because of him, and only him that history hinges on him. But more importantly today, your life hinges on him. Have you submitted your life to this king and his kingdom, or are you still living for some sort of counterfeit kingdom, some lifestyle of the rich and famous? Or if you're more like me, you well, I don't want the lifestyle of rich and famous. I don't need no $2 million home. A $100,000 home will be sufficient. Right? It's amazing. Again, this is the weeds that are so hard to pull. We actually sit on our proud pedestal and we look down on the Kardashians of the world and yet the sin still festers because we want to make a big splash. We want things to come quickly and without suffering. We want a crown without Calvary. We want to be rewarded without serving. And so whose kingdom are you living in? Whose kingdom are you living for? Are we pursuing the counterfeits? Or could, does Jesus' kingdom attract you? Don't you want to be a part of a kingdom where it's not about coercion and power, 
but about mercy and love? Don't you want to be a part of a kingdom where you lay down your life? You don't have to fight for it. And if someone takes your life, guess what? You resurrect with a better life than they could have ever taken from you. And so Jesus, what does he do? He travels the countryside. He says, hey, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent means turn away from your kingdom. Turn away of what you've been pursuing. Think about when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Really to pray that, you have to say, your kingdom come, my kingdom go. Your will be done, my will go. And yet, those who do that will find themselves in relationship with the king and the kingdom that will never end. Will your heart really be satisfied with fame and fortune? What does a man really gain if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? I've just finished the most recent book by David Brooks, who's a New York Times editor. It's called The Second Mountain. Maybe you know some of his story. He was born into a Jewish family. received some prominence in writing and teaches at Yale on the side. Uh, But beginning in 2004, he went from just being a respecter of religious things. He was kind of an agnostic Jew. He went from being just a, a respecter to an honest seeker. But then in 2013, his life, the the bottom of his life fell out. In a divorce, it ripped his soul and his life to shreds. He writes about having sought fame and fortune, but now he has found that he has more fame and money than he wants or needs. In the midst of the worst season of his life, David Brooks has become a professing follower of Jesus Christ. Why, though? It's all about the king and the kingdom. These are his words. Jesus came not to be the awesome, conquering Messiah that most of us would want, but to be the lamb to submit, to love his enemies. He came not to be the victim of sin, but the solution. His strength was self-sacrificial, and his weapon, love, so that we might live. So friends, be not afraid. You may be concerned that the kingdom isn't growing or changing or arriving as you hope. But Jesus' kingdom has been on the move ever since his resurrection for 2,000 years. It's reached the Mother Teresa's. It's reached the David Brooks's. It's even reached the Matt Proctor's. God is good, and his kingdom will continue to advance, and one day there will be a harvest of reckoning, and all will be made right, and all tear wiped away. Who's, what king are you living for what kingdom are you a part, about, a part of? Let me pray. Father, I would just pray that um, some of my friends this morning would do a little uh, weeding work in their soul like I've had to do this week. And I'm guessing it's not the last time we'll have to do the weeding, but even now, can we, will we pull out some of the weeds of pride and fame-seeking, power, our, our desire to coerce and manipulate and control and just realize that that's not the, that's not the kingdom. That's not the behavior of our king. Oh, he is merciful. Oh, he is sacrificial. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Lord, you are creating a kingdom in, that is so not like this world. It is not of this world, and yet it's the kingdom that will endure forever. 
And we praise you because your kingdom is awesome. It is beautiful. It is good. And all the other kingdoms are counterfeits. They're ugly. They're death-dealing. They're ultimately bankrupt. But yours is rich and wonderful. And so we pray that by your grace would be, we would be fit and made worthy of the kingdom by your blood. It's not through our works, not through our actions. It's by the sheer mercy that flows from the grace that flows from the cross that came from your shed blood. In Christ's name, amen.